Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Claire Fulham on pouring her personal experience of hair loss into her training as a trichologist and how we should all focus more on scalp health over hair health. Claire has the most brilliant way about her, a fabulous mix of an effervescent personality. She really knows her stuff and is a bit of crack. It's a winning combination. You will love her and be very surprised at some of the everyday things which might be damaging your scalp. And Miriam Mulcahy lost half her family in the space of seven years. Sea swimming has played an enormous part in her life and became a place of solace in her grief. And she's documented all her experience in her beautiful book, This Is My Sea. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I started this week at a funeral of a beautiful soul I was lucky enough to spend a good bit of time with this summer. He lived abroad, so wasn't someone in my everyday. But as I say, he was in Ireland this summer and there were lots of times our paths crossed and he died unexpectedly again. It's not my story to tell, particularly on a public platform. But the reason I mention it is because it was yet another realisation for me that we never really know the last time we will see someone or when life is going to change irreversibly forever. At the funeral, it was said that he lived, worked and died doing what he loved, which is pretty incredible for a life, really, although for sure gone too soon for the people who loved him. And so I found myself lately embracing life, saying yes to time with the special people in my life. We travelled to the UK to celebrate my auntie's 80th birthday. This realisation I've been having made me book that flight. Life is for living. People are to be hugged, celebrated and returning to where my mum is from and her family is so ingrained in my childhood that it means a lot for my children to have that too. So a thoughtful, reflective week for me amidst the Christmas prep madness I know we're all feeling the value of being able to hold our loved ones tight at the moment. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, before I introduce you to my next guest, I just want to mention that next week's show is going to be the Christmas Eve show. And I'm going to be joined by TV cook Erica Drum, who has been with us all year teaching us how to eat seasonably and giving us her recipes. And she's going to be giving us some last minute tips to reduce the stress in the Christmas kitchen. But before all that, she has a little Christmas present for us right now. And she is on the line now. Erica, how are you? Thank you so much, Claire. How you're are you? like I'm a so little, excited. You're a little culinary Santa, aren't you? Giving everybody a <laughs> gift of your recipes. Oh, thank you. You're so good. Look, I just want people to stay calm. Don't panic. And if you want a few nice, easy recipes for, you know, around the day, these aren't, these aren't necessarily for the big bird itself, but a few side dish ideas, from some starter ideas, canapes, you know, like um, pinwheels, put, uh, smoked salmon, terrine, that kind of thing uh, that I've tried and tested and certainly tested on guests over the years. Um, so I think it's nice to give them now. If I was to give them next on, on Christmas Eve, you know, they'd be wasted. So, And I mean, you obviously love food and love putting effort into food. But at the end of the day, you're all about just the enjoyment of food. So there's nothing in there that's going to have anybody in a flap. Not really. Like there are some some recipes I've put in some um, 
crab claws, Christmas crab claws, I call them, or, or scallops, if you wanted to be a bit more adventurous. I would only recommend things like that if you're a small number of guests. Um, but like, you know, I've, I have a really nice recipe in there for Christmas syrup, which is a sugar-based Christmas syrup that you could actually add to wine or cider to make your, um, your mulled wine or your cider or on top of your Christmas dessert, which could be a bought pavlova, some chopped fruit, and then drizzle over the syrup with some cream and you're laughing. Great. I love your style. So as I said, you're going to come in next Sunday and we're going to really talk some tips and maybe go through some of these recipes. But if people want to get the recipe booklet before then, because Christmas Eve is going to be a bit too late, where do they go? Okay, so it's not actually online anywhere because I'm kind of keeping it for personal use. So it's to send me an email on ericadrum1, so E-R-I-C-A-D-R-U-M and the number one at gmail.com. Or to head over to my Instagram page and just send me a little DM, Erica Drum, E-R-I-C-A-D-R-U-M-I-E. And they should find me easily there. And look, if they have really big trouble, maybe they can get in touch with you guys. But that's, that's simple. Send me the email and I'll send it straight over. So it's about 20 recipes altogether. It's worth having and year on year. These are recipes we've used in our home for years. So they're lovely. Amazing. Erica, thank you so much. And we'll see you in studio next Sunday, Christmas Eve. I know, I can't wait. Don't want to waste our lives away, but can't wait. See you then. Thanks, guys. Now, my next guest, writer Miriam Mulcahy, in her own words, lost half her family in the space of seven years. Her father died at only aged 69 unexpectedly, her mother a few years later, and then her beloved sister Ashling died of cancer. The sea was a place the whole family went and Miriam returned in her grief to reunite with her family members past and to be held. She's documented her experience of love, loss, grief and recovery in her beautiful book, This Is My Sea. And she joins me on the line now. Miriam, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Claire. And I'm so sorry, first off, for your loss and especially for me to just collate it all in a introduction like that, but I want to do your beautiful book justice and I wanted to give people the perspective on which you wrote the book. So I hope you'll forgive me putting those massive moments in your life into a mere few sentences. No, it's fine. It's fine, Claire. Now, The Sea, as the title suggests, has been a central part of your family's life long before the lockdowns drove us all into the waves and to buy dry robes. Your mum and dad were all over this sea Mm. stuff. Yeah, well, mum and dad both grew up beside the sea. Dad grew up in Clontarf and would have swum in the Clontarf baths and mum and the, you know, Dolly Mount, the bull wall would, would have been a huge part of his childhood. And mum grew up in Bray, so uh, she used to talk about um, running down to the beach at Little Bray with her jam sandwiches and her bottle of milk and spending the whole day there with her brothers uh, swimming in the sea all day long. So uh, they were very much, it was very much part of their lives. And then when they got together as a couple, um, it was very much part of what they did, what they did together and what they loved to do together. And all of our holidays as children were always based around the sea. And that's something else about the book. Not only is it a, a love letter, obviously, to your your family, but it's also to the coastal areas of Ireland. The way you write about Kerry in particular, mm. the Skelligs, it's so beautiful. And all that love of the sea. And 
You live in another beautiful county, nonetheless, but it is landlocked in Kildare. Unfortunately, I have the misfortune to live in Kildare. I know I'm joking, Claire. Uh, Kildare is is a brilliant place to live, and I'm very, very happy here. It would be perfect if we had some coast. Uh, But, you know, we can get up to Dublin. Just yesterday, I was with a group of friends in uh, Balscadden Beach in Hoth. So we do make the trip up to the beaches around Dublin whenever we can and go down to Wexford as often as we can. Um, but yeah, uh, Kerry, I think they kind of, um, the water in Kerry is particularly different. It's incredibly clear, like the Irish Sea can be very murky and dirty, but the Atlantic is incredibly clear. It has this beautiful clarity and colour to it that I just adore and makes me very, very happy to swim in. And you talk, it's all the way at the end in the acknowledgements, I think, about how for almost a decade you tried to write this book mm. in a different direction. What what changed? Um, I, I, was, I was kind of writing it the wrong way and from the wrong perspective. And then about, um, about a year and a half ago, I got interest from Deirdre Nolan, who's the publisher at Airu. And she could see something in it and she could see something in what I was trying to do. Um, but I still wasn't getting the message right. I think I was just trying to cram too much in. I was trying to put too much of my own life in there. And then Deirdre just kind of said to me, just just write about the death, just write about the grief, write about the death. And then even when I'd done that, when I cut everything else out, um, she even cut more of it out. Like I had a chapter in there written about uh, my sister Ashley's funeral. And then when we were editing last year, Deirdre was like, they've had two funerals. They don't need a third one. We're taking this out. Um, so it, it was about honing and refining that experience that I had of death and trying to make what was deeply personal to me universal to everybody. And I did that. The kind of difference was I thought, well, how can I write about this differently? And what is unique about me that I could write about this subject in a new way and I guess I thought well look you're a journalist you're a reporter you've never done kind of war reporting you've never been to a war zone but I treated I started to treat death and grief as if it were my war zone and as if as if I were reporting from the trenches of grief and that's what changed the tone of the book and it just put a whole new light on it. And it is a conversation that we need to have more and you do tackle that a little Mm. in the book, the language we have around death. You describe it as almost tepid, how we tiptoe around and say they've they've passed on or they've passed away. And yet when you're going through it, sometimes you want clarity. You want the harsh reality of of what has cracked you wide open and how many people, however well-intentioned, will say there are no words. Mm. And, And that that was frustrating at times for you. And I, and I understand that. Do you think there are right words to say? I do. And I, 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 I suppose in the book, I'm trying to find those words and I'm trying to present them to the reader. And one of the things that has shocked me since the book came out is the amount of messages I get. Like I, I get several messages a week on Instagram, Claire, from people who've read the book, find my account, message me and say, like, it's the first time that I didn't feel alone. It's the first time I felt understood. So I know that, you know, I have done part of the work I set out to do, which was to find the words for death and was to find the words for grief and to present those. And like I read, I read a huge amount of poetry. I, you know, listened to a lot of songs. Music is a huge part of what I do when I work. 
And I, I feel I kind of found the words that, that were that were out there. Like sometimes we can find the words in paintings. You go into the National Gallery and, you know, you're, you're surrounded by the most beautiful work on the planet that is done by the most amazing artists. And, you know, the words are there. So it's just a matter of believing that your words, whatever you need, is out there and nearly sending readers on a quest to look for these words and to say they're out there, you will find them, but you have to look for them. And what about the sea and its role in your grief? Can you put into words what the sea meant for you during those times? Uh, the sea was my absolute saviour, uh, pure and simple. Claire, it absolutely saved me. Um, you know, in the darkest times, and the worst days, like I remember particularly now when Ashling was dying, it was an extremely tough time for all of us. And uh, whenever I got the chance to, I went down to Kerry and I went, went down to the caravan stage, even just for one night in the middle of winter. And I'd swim as often as I could. And it just kind of washes away your pain. Well, it did for me. It won't do that for everybody. But to me, uh, when I go to the sea, I suppose it's nearly like a kind of mystical experience. Um, I love the way that you leave everything behind you. Like we were always brought up just to swim in togs. You know, there were no wetsuits or dry robes or tow floats when we were growing up. And there's that, you know, I, th- I think it's very primal. Like you strip down to nothing. You put your togs on, you go into the sea. There is nothing. There is there is no buffer between you and the ocean and between you and the water. And you are connected to it. And that connection um, kind of plugs you back in. Well, it did for me. It, it just plugged me back into life. And I don't want to give away any parts of the book because I really want people to go on the journey that I went on. But almost every one of your family members had some sort of connection to the water Mm. in their last, you know, few weeks and and months. And it's really very special how it plays a role. And I don't know if it was your intention. I gather that your intention was only to write about your experience Mm. from the heart. But the sea is almost like a, a metaphor because as you're reading the book, you feel like you're being tossed by the waves mm. as you go from, you know, childhood stories, family history, love, loss, grief. And I suppose that is the sea, isn't it? In many ways, we can't control it. No. Sometimes it's choppy. Sometimes mm. it's beautiful. Sometimes it's cruel. All we can do is do our best to enjoy it and that's almost a, a metaphor for life in many ways well I, I think so and I suppose when I was writing the book um I thought a lot about the movement of the sea like like the the sea around Ireland is so different like if you go to the med the tide barely goes in and out you know the way the med is quite static and here in Ireland we have these incredible you know low tides high tides you've got neap tides spring tides like when you swim in the sea in a spring tide and a full moon you feel that power. You cannot help but feel that power. Like there were often times I remember when the kids were small and you'd be looking at the sea and the power of the waves and you'd say to them, not today, you're not going in today. Like, you know, you have to respect it. The sea has a power all of its own. And it kind of, in some ways, what I was trying to um, kind of express in the book was, uh, you know, drawing a parallel between the sea and death in that, uh, death takes over, you have no control of it, you, you can kind of lose yourself and you can lose yourself in grief. And if you allow it to, of course, you can lose yourself in the sea and it, it will be so easy 
to stop swimming and to slip beneath the waves. But we have a massive kind of impulse as humans uh, to survive and to keep going and to draw on that inner strength that it is within all of us. And it's just that idea of another stroke, another kick, another breath. No matter how turbulent the water is, if you keep going, you will get back to shore. Well, I think it's a really important message for people to hear, especially ones who are going through loss right now. And there are so many beautiful ways that you describe how grief can affect us and how we can deal with those feelings in your book. And I want to explore some more of them with you. But before we do, I'll just need to take a quick commercial break. You are listening to Alive and Kicking with me, Claire McKenna. Do stay tuned as we continue this conversation with Miriam Mulcahy after this break. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking with me, Claire McKenna. And if you're just joining us, I'm speaking to Miriam Mulcahy. Miriam lost half her family in just the space of seven years. And throughout the years, sea swimming has been an integral part of her life and has become a place of solace as she comes to terms with her loss and grief. She's documented all her experiences in a beautiful book called This Is My Sea. And just before the break, we were talking about how the sea can be viewed in the same way as our grief, that we can become lost in the power of the swell sometimes, but that if we just keep kicking, keep swimming, keep breathing, we'll eventually get back to shore. And I think there's a real truth in that all throughout the book. You're searingly honest about your struggles and I really respected that, Miriam. You didn't paint a pretty picture of the aftermath because how would it be to lose your dad, your mum and your sister? So how important was it to you that you shared your grief in all its truth? Well, I think it's one of the reasons that it's resonating so much with readers and that people are loving the book is, you know, you can't half tell a story. You you can't be half hearted about it. You know, um, you have to go all in as as a journalist, as a writer, when you're telling the story. Um, like there was one review of my book, Claire, and the reviewer found my emotions too much and, you know, said that I should have not left all of myself on the page. But I mean, what does death do except break you open and expose you, expose everything inside you to the world? And, you know, there is no hiding place from death. And that's why with the book, I knew I had to be incredibly open, incredibly honest and incredibly truthful. And if that's too much for some people, that's outside my control. That's fine. But in that truth and in that honesty and in that sharing, that absolute sharing of my utter and total devastation at the loss of my family. Um, it is it is helping people because people can say, well, God, if she can be that open with her grief, maybe I can look at mine. Like one of my big things in the book is our fear of death, you know, our, our inability to look at it, to turn around and to stare down our enemy, to look at it in the face and to cope with death. I believe we have to do that. You know, you have to name your enemy. You must put um, an actual name out and say, you know, you're there and I have to deal with you, but I am strong enough to deal with you. Yeah. And I, I, I can't believe you would have got that review. I mean, there's no right or wrong way for somebody to grieve. I, I suppose maybe they were worried for you sharing in that way. No. But as you say, it's to help other people. Um, And you talk also about the seven stages of grief by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I don't know all of them, but I know the sort of denial, anger, Mm. acceptance and, you know, that we try and put this linear structure on how we're supposed to 
grieve and, and you know, you were thinking, I, I'm not feeling that. I'm not doing this right. But only on further investigation, you discovered that that was never Kubler-Ross's intention. This yeah. was for the dying when they're given a, a terminal diagnosis, yeah. that these are perhaps the stages that they go through. But as a society, we do try and and force a sort of a a structure a, a, as a means to, to coping. But I, I don't think there is anything linear about it. There isn't. And as well, I, I think uh, for, for me, I suppose a huge part of grief, having gone through, through it three times with different members of, of my family in three different ways. No, grief is messy. Grief is uh, complicated. It is not something you can parcel up and neatly put in a box and say, okay, I'm done with that now. You cannot put a time frame on a person's grief. You cannot expect anybody, you know, six months after they've lost a parent, a sister, a brother, a husband or a wife, to be coping. If they're coping, that is marvellous, fair play to them. But if they're not, we have too many expectations around people who are grieving. And when you think back to a century ago, like, you know, 150 years ago with, with the Victorians, and the way that when you had lost someone, you wore black and then you moved to grey and then you moved to purple as you moved through different stages of your grief. But if you want to wear black for the rest of your life, that that, that was your entitlement. You know, there, there, there wasn't any time frame on when you dropped the black. And uh, there's something lovely about that idea of kind of signifying to the world, I'm in mourning, I'm grieving, that we don't have now. We don't have any way of telling the bus driver or the person serving us in the shop that we might have just lost our mother the day before. You know, we don't have a way of communicating that. And I think that makes it, society makes it very difficult for people to grieve. Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the hardest things when you lose somebody that you love Mm. is trying to make peace with the fact that the world is continuing to go on. People are going to work, Mm. people are getting on the bus and there you are following behind someone you love in a, in a hearse. Mm. Um, yeah. And, and and you're right. And, and it's really interesting that we say that grief comes in waves mm. and you don't really know when the next one's going to come and you don't know whether it's going to knock you down or be just a gentle reminder or a song or a smell or well, something. Yeah. And, and that's that's the other thing I didn't realise before I went through all my death. Uh, every birthday is different and every anniversary is different. You know, we as grieving people are carrying around a litany of dates in our head you know, like the 9th of December is the day my mother came home from hospital. You know, uh, the 19th might have been the day she died, but the 21st is the day that we buried her. And I will never, ever forget those days. So it's 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 much more than the anniversary. Uh, there's huge amount of dates um, around a person's dying that is important to the person who's left behind. But nobody around them knows. You know, and after a while... People will forget the anniversary and, as you say, they're getting on with their lives. Everyone's caught up in their own stuff. That's absolutely normal and absolutely fine. But, um, you know, for the person left behind, you you just don't know how every year is going to hit. Like, I find my father's birthday very difficult uh, for some reason. And my mother's birthday is fine. So what's that about? I, I honestly couldn't even begin to understand that. Yeah, it's not something we need to make sense of. It just... Mm is, as they say, what it is. Did the book give you anything to document it, to write your parents' family history, to tell the story of who they were and then to talk about your loss and your grief? Mm. 
did it give anything to you? Did it answer anything? I, I don't even know if you had a question when you started out. Well, I think I think the reason I wrote it was to try and help people and try and say to people, you you know, that you aren't alone, that there are thousands, there are millions of us who understand what you were going through. And I suppose for me, Claire, I was writing the book that I needed to read after I lost so many people in my family. And I just felt that book wasn't out there. Uh, Joan Didion, The Year of Magical Thinking, is a fantastic book about grief, but it's about her husband and her daughter. Uh, C.S. Lewis, um, who wrote Chronicles of Narnia, wrote a, a fantastic book on grief, but that was about his wife. And I just felt, God, you know, I've lost my sister, I've lost my parents. Where is the book for that? Uh, so I do feel that um, I have done something. Uh, have I answered a question? Yeah, because, I mean, for, for me, I suppose I have, a, I have a deep interest in philosophy. I always have had. And I would have read a huge amount of philosophy books. And um, for me, I wanted to write a book that was just not that was not just about death, but that was also about life and how to live. And I think that I've definitely achieved that in that book, that I might have just given people a few ideas about how to live well, because I do believe that after you've been through a lot of loss, um, that you do have a responsibility nearly to honour the lives of the people who've gone and to live as well as you can, whatever that means to you. And uh, to me, yeah. it was kind of just picking up things that I had dropped years ago and reconnecting. I've reconnected with a huge amount of old friends over the last couple of years. And it's been amazing. Wow. And I love that because you do talk about in college, kind of learning about that living mm. life to the fullest um, and for that to be the answer. And I think it's 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 beautiful advice for people mm. because not that you want to necessarily give people advice because there's no right or wrong way, as we said, but I think to embrace life and and to feel it, feel all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, the messy and the great, I, I think is a really beautiful message that comes through in your book. Well, thanks, Claire. And, and like, um, I, I remember once reading that, uh, you know, somebody who's been through great loss, you know, when they find happiness again, however that happiness can be through their kids, through their work, through their relationships, you know, it, it just means so much more to them. And it definitely, I, I, I would have found that, you know, that um, you you take such joy in just your kids being well and your kids being okay. You know, and at the end of the day, you realize that that is all that matters is the well-being of your family and the people you love. Um. And, and it, it just kind of reduces, it kind of cuts out a lot of noise in life. What we think is important, it kind of what do we give our time to? What do we spend our time chasing? And at the end of the day, none of that really matters. Material things don't matter. It's the people around you. It's how you treat them. It's how you look after your kids. You know, they are the most important things in life. And sometimes it takes a traumatic event like death, like a big accident, like illness to kind of get you to see that. Yeah, well, look, I encourage anybody, it's not just if you're experiencing grief, but to read this book, you will go on the most beautiful journey. It's so wonderfully written. It's called This Is My Sea, an exploration of grief and recovery by Miriam Mulcahy. And Miriam, thank you so much for writing it and for talking to me today. No problem, Claire. Thank you. Coming up after the break, Claire Fulham on the importance of a healthy scalp for healthy hair. 
You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, Claire Fulham, also known as Claire Balding on Instagram, came on the show a while back to tell her story of losing all her hair at the age of 27, re-evaluating her life, growing it back. And she spoke about going back and training as a trichologist to help others in similar situations. She's back, fully qualified with a thriving business at Trua Hair, and she's recently launched her own product range, Remy Ireland. She joins me in studio now. Claire, you're very welcome. Thank you. That's a lovely introduction. Thank you. And I was wondering while I was writing it, if Claire with no hair could see you now making a career out of the experience, what would she think? Somebody said that to me when we, just before we launched our products, like I was a nervous wreck, like wouldn't be like me, nervous wreck. And someone said, Claire, imagine like little Claire, little Claire Fulham (laughs) nearly eight years ago would see like what you've done from that experience. Because it was probably the most painful experience of my life, you know, and it still haunts me, even though I've loads of hair now, like those kind of things that I went through eight years ago still stick with me every single day, you know. So, yeah, I have to sometimes sit back and go, geez, now Clay, you've come a long way. <laughs> and, you know, f- taking something that was so, you know, profound in your life and really, you know, really, really held me back in loads of ways, you know, and I've kind of push through that. Uh, yeah, I don't think about that every day, but I probably should every now and again reflect on it, I suppose. But yeah, if little Claire Fulham could see me now. <laughs> but yeah, good story. Uh, like a nice kind of full circle story, I suppose. Because you get it. So yeah. I know you've a team of people now in your mm-hmm. consultancy business talking to people about hair and scalp issues. But you can really feel what people are going through because you've been there. That's what gives you the edge aside from your qualifications. Yeah, I think so. I think that when you speak to someone, because it's such a human thing, the emotions that you go through when losing hair or, you know, when hair is getting thinner as we get older, like, you know, most of us will experience this. That's the reality of it, you know. So to be able to kind of on a very emotional and human human level speak to people. And also I can have the kind of awkward conversations about stress and I can have the awkward conversations about, well, do you think you're, stre-? you know, like those kind of questions I can ask them because I can always go back and say, I didn't think I was either. But, you know, whereas I think that having that little bit of, you know, I suppose life experience as well as qualifications and everything else you know that's what's taught me that's why I'm good at my job not because of the qualifications really to be honest it's because I've been there done that and I think there's an element of trust there as well you know that again I spent the thousands of euro trying to get my hair back would I do it again if it happened tomorrow probably not you know I'd now do things a little bit differently Um, the qualifications help with that definitely because now I'm more educated in terms of what I should do but I think there is an element of trust out there with me and, and my business, you know, so uh, that really, really helps as well. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting you said it still haunts you. And that's because I mentioned in the introduction that you reevaluated your life and you looked at yourself at 24, trying to set up your life and going for a mortgage and working really hard and having small kids. Yeah. And you must be still stress now. I mean, you still have those kids. They're a bit bigger. You're trying to juggle having your own business and Mm -hmm. everything that everybody is doing. So is that what kind of haunts you? Like, oh God, because where is the stress free life? Do you know what I think when I was 27, when my hair fell out, I was trying to pretend that I was grand. You know, I was trying to pretend that it's grand like two kids. It's fine that I just got married last year. It's fine that I own a house and I have a mortgage to pay since I've been 22 years of age. So I grew up really fast. And I think because I did, I had a lot to prove. And I kind of felt like, okay, you can't drop a ball here. Like you, you can't almost let 
the opinions of others win a little bit as well. Like you eat your Claire getting pregnant at 22. <laughs> so I kind of felt this pressure always to make sure that I didn't drop a ball. I met every mortgage repayment. I worked really hard. My kids had everything they needed, you know. That's tough at any age. And it's particularly tough throughout your 20s, I think, as well, because most of your peers probably aren't going through that with you, you know. And you are kind of constantly trying to work for all these things. And it's never ending, as you well know, Claire, as well, those stress levels, you know. I think now the way I live my life is I'm very open about it. When I'm stressed, I'll tell people, you know, whether that's into my phone and Instagram, ranting and raving about something, or whether it's to my husband or to my mom, to my friends. I'll get it off my chest. I've learned how to speak. I've learned how to be vulnerable. I've learned that it's so normal to be stressed. All of us are stressed. Nine, you know, nine times out of ten, you know, it's it's a tough uh, life that we live, you know, and things will happen. And when my hair fell, I definitely wasn't the most stressed in my life. I've been more stressed since then, but because I'm able to speak about it a little bit easier, I think now, and don't hold those shackles around me always I think that makes it easier on my hair to be honest you know yeah and when you feel that stress you kind of pull back rather than keep going and shoving it down and that is a very different way to live it doesn't mean the stress is gone but it's how you handle the stress that's changed yeah so you were really inspired to help others did that inspiration help keep you going through all the science and the assignments that came with the study? Yeah. So I'm not a natural studier, right? I did a grand leave insert. I never went to college. I went straight into work. So I'm a bit of a workhorse. So I never really liked to study, found it difficult. But it's funny when you find something that you're interested in, it doesn't feel like studying. It doesn't feel like learning. It feels like just, you know, opening your mind to how this could apply to Claire how this could apply to Aoife, how this could apply to Michael, you know, that kind of way. And really those learnings helped me figure out, you know, how to kind of get through those. It was really difficult. It's very expensive to be a trichologist. It's very, like, you know, long hours of study while trying to, you know, run a business at the same time, have kids, all that kind of stuff. But you do need that level of credibility, of course, you know. It's not good enough. Even though I probably have learned more from the personal side, literally I've probably learned more from that you do need that piece of paper to be like look take me seriously guys <laughs> I know what I'm talking about you know yeah for sure and even though we were talking about your instance of complete hair loss hair loss can happen to anyone at any time and it doesn't necessarily have to be all of the hair gone it's more common than people think oh yeah 100% like 60% of women will go through hair loss in their life so that's over half of us you know and it doesn't mean that like total hair loss it doesn't mean cases of autoimmune conditions like alopecia areata it doesn't mean like those extreme circumstances but there's no doubt about it that our hair will thin as we get older, like the consequence of an aging scalp is fine thinning hair. We don't care about wrinkles up on the scalp. We don't care about fine lines the same way as maybe we perhaps care about our faces. But the reality is every year that goes by, it's harder for us to grow hair. And also when our hair turns white or grey, it's half the size as your naturally pigmented hair in your 20s, you know. So even when you're in your 40s and 50s, you're not actively losing hair. You'll have less hair. Well, you'll feel like you have less hair because your hair will be finer and thinner. So 
I think the more knowledge we have, you know, there's not one product that will fix it all for everybody. And there's actually only a level of fixing that we can do. It is the aging process, of course, as well. But trying to, and that's what we do in Trua, really try and make sure people understand the scalp, you know, so they can, you know, put plans in place. They can work alongside of very much like skincare. Like we're all nearly dermatologists at this stage when it comes to our skin and all the bits and bobs we do to it. You should be treating your scalp that way as well. There's very little you can do to the hair. The hair's dead. The minute it comes out of your scalp, it's a dead cell. So we can paint it, we can fluff it up, we can hydrate it with lovely hair masks and everything else and build those bonds back up in the hair. But that's like makeup. You're never going to change the physical reality of your hair. You can just make it look better temporarily. But how you change your hair, the only way to change your hair is through the scalp. And that's a quite a new you know, um, phenomenon, phenomenon, <laughs> it's a quite a new, um, you know, subject to speak about in that world, you know, but scalp care is the biggest thing, you know, it will completely take over skincare over the next number of years. That's what the trends look like. Um, so we need to jump on it and make sure that we're doing as much as we can. As I said, it's not for everybody, you know, people's hair isn't as important to them as my hair is to me, you know, but definitely trying to have that level of understanding, you know, that my hair will get finer and thinner as I get older. And like not older is in 60s and 70s, like older is in 30s and 40s, you know, men, it's 20s. Like after the age of 12, a man's hair starts to lose density, a boy's hair starts to lose density. So that's a big deal, you know, that can affect their confidence, their self-esteem. You know, I know so many men that come to us that won't go on a date, you know, because he's embarrassed about his hair loss, um, you know, won't go for that promotion and work, you know, doesn't like to go to family events because he'll get slagged by his brothers or his sisters or whatever. Like, they all probably seem like quite minor things, but that compounded really starts to chip away at someone's confidence. And I don't think we value our hair until we don't have it. I certainly didn't. You know, I did think about it. My hair was always spectacular, <laughs> breathtaking. And then it was on the floor. I realised how much I relied on it for my self-confidence, you know, and it's huge. So we should be trying to change our perspective, spend less money on hair care and more money on scalp care. And why is there that difference between men and women? I mean, hair loss in men seems to be the one thing that they have that we don't. We're usually like, we're the ones with the crosses to bear, us women over here. But I mean, that can be really tough, as you say, to start losing your hair and in inverted commas ageing in your early 20s. Yeah, I think it's easier like on a societal level for men to lose their hair because if you see a bald man you wouldn't look twice you know or if you saw a man's hairline receding or you know a crown receding and getting finer and thinner you don't think twice you know if a bald woman walks into a room everyone's head will turn. So society allows men to live in this world, but it's still as personally, I think, um, harrowing for somebody, male or female, you know, to lose that lack, that sense of identity, to feel like they're getting prematurely, you know, older. Um, that really, really affects someone. But I think it's a little bit easier for men um, to live in this world, but it's still personally as difficult for them. Like we see them, you know, like in tears over this, like it really affects their lives, you know. So trying to, again, get into those habits while we're young, you know, know that this will happen, you know, that our hair will get finer and thinner. But how are we going to do, like, what are the steps that we need to kind of do to try and protect as much as possible? And is it a hormonal difference between men and women that they lose hair 
more yes. rapidly than us. So men, it's definitely DHT. That's a, that's a hormone. Um, and like there's loads of shampoos and treatments out there that will have kind of DHT blockers within them. So it's the androgen hormones within men. So testosterone. So, you know, that will happen, especially in, in your 20s in a man, their testosterone is really, really high, you know. So if you're destined to lose your hair, you'll probably lose it in your 20s due to hormonal reasons and stuff. And then it's age, you know, in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know. But women can also also suffer with andro hormones as well like there's something called androgenetic alopecia which is like male pattern female pattern hair loss uh, that's a chronic condition that we won't completely solve but again you can work alongside it and there's loads of ingredients out there that you should be looking for like anti with anti-inflammatory properties and stuff within it that will help the scalp you know it's about trying to keep that scalp as you know balanced as possible as energized as possible you know but definitely the the difference would be you know, in, in male and female would be that andro hormone, you know, but it is common in females as well. And aside from the chronic conditions, then what are the main reasons for hair loss? So many. Fever is a big one. So when you are sick, which we're all sick at the moment, right? So when you are sick, if you get a temperature, that can spike down into it. It's called a telogen effluvium. So it's like a, like a huge loss of, of hair kind of, you know, um, after an event. So it could be a traumatic event. It could be sickness. It could be after an operation, anaesthetic. It could be a lot of blood loss as well. So a lot of women that would have heavy periods as well would suffer with a telogen effluvium. Um, little simple things and stress is the biggest one you know that we would see kind of a case of fall down and normally happens about three months after the event so if you had COVID you know in September you won't really see hair loss for another three months or so you know or if you had your operation in September or if you had your baby in September then a couple of months later then you would see that hair loss so that's called a telogen effluvium you know Um, and stress again stress is such a dirty words. People think you need to be like off your head with stress, right? You don't. You just need to be doing stuff that's out of your normal, you know? So even though like I moved house this summer, I'm like, it's grand. But like, it's a big deal, you know, like moving all your stuff, moving your kids, you know, changing all the bills. It's extra pressure on yourself, you know. And when you are stressed and your kind of nervous system is kind of fighting and protecting you as much as possible, you start to create a hormone called noradrenaline. So it's the opposite to adrenaline. Adrenaline is the lovely one you get when you're excited and happy. Noradrenaline, one of its first jobs is to go up to the hair bulbs and shrink them. If you shrink your hair bulbs, your hair doesn't really have much strength to hold on to within the scalp, so it releases the hair prematurely. So when you go through stress, and again, people are like, I'm grand. And of course you're grand. You're getting on with your life. You're feeding your kids still. You're going to work every day, but you're doing that extra bit. Whatever that extra bit is could be causing some sort of physical and emotional stress within the body, you know. So they're the main ones why people would lose hair. And you see a lot of kids. I mean, I contacted you recently about my own 10 year old daughter who every time I was brushing her hair, you know, it was coming out in clumps in the brush. It was all across her pillow. And when I mentioned she'd moved schools, even though she was really happy and there was no major problems, that that could have been it. As you say, it's just something outside the normal can just create a little bit of discomfort in the body. Absolutely. We say in our consultations, 15 to 20 percent are children you know, and there's a lot of stress within kids, particularly the last number of years as well. And it's so hard to say that to a mommy or daddy. You know, I remember even going to you, Claire, voice messaging, going, oh God, it's really hard because you never want to think of your kids as stressed, you know, or, and you know, they're they're visibly not, they're fine. She's great in school and everything else. But it's that little niggling kind of thought within a child's mind, perhaps, you know, 
a lot through COVID, like a lot through COVID. Like we were, everyone was talking about this deadly virus and protecting Nana and Grandad. And they, imagine their poor little nerves like were gone, you know. And again, even though they were happy at home with you guys, they were doing their online school that was a huge change for them you know so and that's really affected children probably more than we know you know in terms of their well-being and their mental health and stuff as well and then going back and transitioning back into school again and all of a sudden it's foot to the floor again you know like it never happened so we saw a huge amount of children you know and within consultations and you know children are really susceptible to autoimmune conditions as well like alopecia areata too you know um and again, they don't have to be visibly stressed. It can be just that tiny little niggling thought, you know, that can kind of, you know, preoccupy their mind a little bit more. Or a temperature, like what child in the country hasn't had a temperature this year, you know? Um, so all of those little things will affect kids. And kids are, you know, really, really well able to grow back hair. Like, you know, nearly again, nine times out of ten, except for those really acute autoimmune conditions, a child will have a full head of hair again in a year, you know? So they're really... Um, built to get over things you know they're very very able to do that so with a little bit of treatment not major but just a little bit of tipping away at something giving them a little bit of a routine will really help God damn them and that constant <laughs> cell renewal <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I never thought I'd get to a point of being jealous of cell renewal <laughs> So jealous So jealous Um as you say, so many of these things are treatable. What are some of the things we can do to protect our scalp? I was very surprised. Um, I know Roz Purcell went to you for alopecia, pa- alopecia patches. She shared it on her Instagram and some of the tips underneath and things like not going to bed with your hair wet, something I've done countless times that I, I didn't really know about. Talk us through some of those tips. Yeah, so like going to bed with your hair wet is, is quite a bad thing, right? Your hair when it's wet is 41% more likely to break. So it's really vulnerable when it's wet. So then if you get into bed, wrap it up in a bobbin and toss and turn all night, you're causing hair breakage 100%. There's no doubt about it. It's also really bad for bacteria build up on the scalp. So like if you're prone to dandruff, let's say, never ever, you know, even leave your hair naturally dry. You should always dry your scalp at least, you know. You can leave the ends of your hair a little bit damp if you wanted to but your scalp needs to be dry because if you think about where bacteria grows it would be in a warm damp environment so going to bed with your hair wet's a no-no I'm afraid sorry Claire Uh, loads of different things like things like exfoliating your scalp so important to exfoliate your scalp you know think of all the dead skin cells it's the second fastest dividing cell in the body so think of all those skin cells up there think of the sweat the dandruff the dry scalp think of all the stuff that falls on it you know so pollution perfume Febreze, dust, everything. So it all lands up there. If you want your hair to get out of your scalp and you're kind of struggling anyway a little bit with hormone changes or with stress in your life, you need it to be able to literally push through that skin and get out and grow really, really healthy and strong. Most people can grow hair, but the quality of their hair that they grow is really important. So exfoliating once a week is the best thing that you could do to your scalp and your hair. You know, you'll see a major difference in the way your hair sits, the way your hair performs, the softness of your hair if you started exfoliating your scalp. But try and look for exfoliators that don't have beads within them. Do you remember? I don't know if you did this, Claire, but like I used to wash my face like back in the 90s with like, remember the Saint Ives stuff? and The, the apricot scrub. The we apricot were scrub. all blowing <laughs> our faces off. Yeah. So we're like pulling all the skin barrier and stuff off. Same with your scalp. Your scalps need to be gentle with it. So leaning on products that, you know, are clear, but would have like salicylic acid, glycolic acid, lactic acid, all the stuff that we use in our face. Scalp is skin. So you need to be careful of that, you know. So exfoliating your scalp is number one, you know. 
leaning on a shampoo that's for your scalp type. So a lot of people come to us and say, oh, Claire, my hair's oily, can't stand it. I'm like, well, what do you want me to do about that now? Because <laughs> that is your scalp type, you know? There's no running away from that. All these training your hair and all this stuff doesn't work. You can't, it's not a dog. You can't train your scalp, you know? So leaning into that and using a shampoo for your scalp type is so, so important. Let the other stuff, conditioners, masks, leave-in products, oils, let them look after your hair. But your shampoo should always be there to service your scalp. If you're going through hair loss, lean on an energising shampoo. If you're going through, like if you have an oily scalp, lean on an oily scalp shampoo. If you have a dry scalp, lean on a dry scalp shampoo. Your shampoo is one of the most important steps as well. And a lot of people don't leave their shampoo on long enough. They get in and out of the shower really quickly. But try and leave your shampoo on your scalp if you can for about two minutes, you know. It needs to do a job, you know, and always bring it underneath your hairline as well. So big, huge scrubs up on the scalp. Once it's all nice and sudsy, grab some suds off the top and rub it into your hairline. Your hairline is the most vulnerable part of the scalp and most women after 40 will see like a decline in their hairline. So the more you wash that, you know, and exfoliate that, the better that will kind of strength wise, you know. Um, the hairline will still step back a bit as we get older, but all of those little tips, you know, to prevent it. And then your conditioners, your masks, your oils, your heat protects, they're for your hair. But your scalp is the most important thing about your hair, you know. Don't be minding colour, cuts, curls, extensions that's where people spend their money on, do you know? But if your scalp isn't correct, you won't be able to do all those things, do you know? So it's really, really important to start thinking of our scalps like skin. And this is radio, but I wish you could see the head of hair that Claire has. It is lustrous. She's like Farrah Fawcett over here. If Farrah Fawcett was lucky enough to have this auburn shade. Claire, I could literally do an hour with you. It is fascinating and you're so easy to listen to. If people want to find out more, you can go to trueahair.ie, remy.ie or you can follow Claire at Claire underscore Balding on Instagram. Claire Fulham, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks a million. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aoife Breen and Hugo De Silva Scott who is on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.